the Writers' Room, a podcast by the Choices Program at Brown University, where we take a look at some of the debate and discussions behind the writing of Choices Curriculum for high schools. We hope that these conversations will help spark ideas for the classroom. My name is Lindsay Tershan. And I'm Andy Blackadar, and today's episode we'll be talking about the role of personal stories in creating historical narratives. Um, today we have someone who can help us talk about this and understand this. Uh, we're lucky to have Jim Green. He's Professor of Modern Latin American History and Portuguese and Brazilian Studies, as well as the director of Brazil, the Brazil Initiative here at Brown. Jim, welcome and thank you for being here. Well, thank you for inviting me to come. It's our pleasure. Um, today we're talking about the way that we create narratives about history. Uh, we think about this at, at Choices all the time, and you certainly think about this as a professional historian. Um, so we'd hope to have some discussion with you about this and your work as it relates to Brazil and the work that you've done in the past. And if it's okay with you, Jim, we thought maybe we would just start by having you tell us a little bit about what role personal narratives play for you in writing history and how do you use those stories? Well, so if you're looking at contemporary history, that is things that have happened in the last 50 or so years, a wonderful source is people's lived experiences and the way they can relate to them or talk about them. Uh, and this is a wonderful way to complement documents and other materials that can talk about the past and give us windows into the past. Um, like everything that uh, we use to write history, we have to understand that it has a bias, that it has a perspective, that it has a point of view. And so just as a newspaper article might have the point of the view of the journalist or the publisher that's publishing the newspaper, so a person remembering their past has a point of view, what they remember, what they think is important, what they forget, what they choose not to talk about. So one of the challenges is to first find people who can talk about the past convince them that this is a good thing to do, and then listen to them and ask them important questions, and then also take that material and draw from it to figure out what is um, particular about their bias, ignore their, their point of view, and how we can understand that as part of understanding the past. Mm -hmm. So how have you used them exactly? Can you give some examples from your work? And why did you choose them? And what were the bigger narratives that you were trying to tell? So um, the book that I can think of that makes kind of sense to talk about here is a book that I wrote called We Cannot Remain Silent, Opposition to the Brazilian Dictatorship in the United States. And it was a story of a group of clergy, academics, uh, Brazilians, and other activists in the late 60s and the early 70s who carried out a decentralized campaign against uh, torture and repression in Brazil. Um, and so I collected materials, newsletters, bulletins, newspaper clippings, But they didn't tell me the story of how these individuals actually did the organizing they did, what led them to do that, what were the motivations, what were the obstacles, what were the challenges. And so uh, tracking them down and having them recount their histories, remember the past, and then piece that together, because all of them had very partial memories of the past, was a way that I could reconstruct a narrative, a story that could not be found any other place. It wasn't in writing anywhere. This was an original story that never had been told, never had been collected, never had been put down. So, for example, interviewing um, a, a clergyman named Bill Whitfield, who was the head of the Latin American Department of the National Council of Churches, who received testimonies of people who had been tortured in Brazilian prisons, 
and took those to the Inter-American Human Rights Commission of the Amer Organization of American States to look at them and to decide whether Brazil had committed human rights violations. Recounting his story gave me a window into the process that led him to become involved in Latin America, to be motivated by this issue of human rights, and to carry out ongoing campaigns. Something that I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about, I know you've done extensive work studying Herbert Daniel and his life. And I think, I guess one question that I have is, how did you come across him as a figure? Why did you choose him? So Herbert Daniel is a person who is not known by anyone in the United States. Uh, and even he's not well known among Brazilians. But mm -hmm. Herbert Daniel was a medical student uh, in the city of Belo Horizonte, Minas Gerais in the mid-60s. He came from a family of people who were involved in the military. But when he went to medical school in 1965, he became increasingly politicized about the fact that the military had taken power in 1964 in a coup d'etat, and there was increasingly repressive things happening at the universities and in the country as a whole. And he decided, uh, along with other people such as former President Jim Hussafi, to join an underground resistance to the military regime and carry out radical actions to try to overturn this military government. What was interesting about Herbert Daniel is at the same time he was realizing that he was gay. And he didn't know how to deal with that because the climate at the time was not gay friendly. He felt that he couldn't be a radical activist and also be gay. And so over the course of time, he came to the conclusion that he had to hide his homosexuality, repress it, in order to join this group and to be involved in uh, these activities, these underground activities against the military regime. And when, when these activities ended in failure and the organization he was a part of disbanded because most of the people were arrested, some of them were killed by the military regime, he um, ended up going into exile in Portugal and in France. And in exile, he kind of came out again and accepted his homosexuality and um, challenged progressive people in Brazil to their homophobic ideas. Mm. So I was interested in this topic in general and had read a semi-autobiography that he had written. Um, but he had passed away. He had died of AIDS in 1992. So I couldn't reach him. And I wanted to write a biography of him. I thought he was a very unique person, but I didn't know how to do that. And then someone said, well, his mother is alive. You should talk to his mother. She lives in Belo Horizonte. So I got her telephone number and I called her. And I asked if I could interview her, and she said yes. And I literally got a plane ticket, and the next day I flew <laughs> to her city from Rio and went to her house for the afternoon. She offered me coffee and cookies, and we talked. And she told me just wonderful stories about her son growing up. So I felt, well, you can do a biography if you know the backstory of it. Mm -hmm. But there was there were holes in her story. Like, what, what was he like in junior high school and high school? What were the things that were not in his, his autobiography? Mm -hmm. So I... His mother said, well, you should talk to his girlfriend. And I thought, he didn't have a girlfriend. He didn't tell me he had a girlfriend. And she called her son and said, what was, what was Herbert's girlfriend's name? And he said, Laisa. And so I tracked her down and interviewed her. And when she told me stories of high school and what happened to them, they were best friends in high school, close as, as could be. Then I realized after a two and a half hour interview with her that I had, a, I had the basis for a book. And 75 interviews later and hundreds of documents... <laughs> And almost eight years of research, um, I managed to finish a book. So tell me a little more about why studying someone like him helps us understand history 
better. What do we gain from that? Where is he in the broader narrative? Right. Right. So in the United States, we have a democracy. We The military doesn't come to power and close down Congress and outlaw uh, student activities and arrest people and torture them. And therefore, it's hard for us to imagine what it must be like to live in a country where this this happens. Um, This is common not only in Brazil to have occurred in the past, but in most countries of Latin America. The military has come to power and carried out egregious human rights violations over the years. So I think... um, those people who are in those situations and fight for freedom and fight for democracy and fight for social justice are kind of models for us in this country. Um, I must admit, I, as a young person, read the diary of Anne Frank and was fixated on thinking how I would hide Jews, where I would hide Jews, if a similar situation happened in the United States as to happen in Germany. So there was a certain romanticism about people in difficult circumstances fighting for social justice. And I was very fascinated to know how he was personally motivated, what was the motivation of his generation, how they did this, what were the pros and the cons of the strategies they employed to try to to bring down a military regime, and how successful they were. So I think this is important for us to value democracy in our country, but also to understand the processes around the world. The United States, whether we like it or not, is intimately involved in countries all over the world. Um, for economic, political, and other reasons. And so we need to have informed understandings of these countries. And so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book. Mm -hmm. I think something that teachers or students might sometimes be skeptical of is their ability to just focus on one person, say, and their story and to really understand kind of this broader picture, right? And to have a deeper knowledge. And so it's very helpful to hear you talk about that and how you can actually do that. And I would love to hear more. Well, I think teachers do this all the time when they take George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or uh, Harriet Tubman and use them as kind of iconic Mm -hmm. figures to represent social movements, Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King. So we do it for U.S. history. I think people are afraid to do it for other countries because they think, well, I don't know enough. I'm going to say something Mm -hmm. wrong. I don't understand the context. And I understand that. It does take training and knowledge. Um, But... You just inspired me to think about how I can make my books accessible to people uh, other than educated intellectuals who will buy a 350-page book and read it. And so you've just inspired me to think about doing <laughs> a youth version of this book. That I love the idea. Well, what is the full title of the book? Uh, it's called, it's called uh, in English, it's a work in progress, the title. Okay. We have one in Portuguese. But the English title at this point is... Um, Gay and Revolutionary, The Life and Times of Herbert Daniel. But that's not the final title, unfortunately. We're still working on the title. Were you thinking about bringing out the marginalized voices as well in the experience of a gay revolutionary? Well, I mean, that, a story that that's is, not told? Or, or Well, it has to do with my own biography because I also was a, um, you know, grew up in a nice, comfortable middle-class family, Quaker parents, and realized I was gay. And it was very hard to accept that. It took a long time to feel that I could be myself. And um, I think... Even before I knew I was gay, I identified with other people. I was very much identified with the civil rights movement and mm-hmm. also I, the example of Anne Frank and the persecution of Jews during World War II. And I think that was a way of identifying with the other that was about me. Uh, and so writing this book is a way of um, reflecting on my own life and my own insights and knowledge about what it means to be an outsider, to be marginalized, to have to hide, to have to keep secrets, to be afraid of being rejected to not feeling that you fit in, all those things that 
gays and lesbians and transgender people experience as they're growing up um, is something that I experience and identify with deeply. And so I think I have a lot of empathy for others who are going through similar experiences. And that was one of the motivations for this book. Sure. But, and also it seems to me too, it's stories that aren't often told, right? Or maybe historians are reluctant to tell those stories. Right. Or so you're, it seems to me. No, and, and quite frank, frankly, talking about this and thinking that teachers might think about this in the school is incomprehensible to me because this would have been a, this was a silence in my growing up that mm. I think is not a silence today in school, though there's certainly people who would like to make it a silence in school. So the fact that I can be talking to you about this for a choices program is kind of amazing to me. And that shows how social movements change society, which is very exciting. Agreed. Yeah. Mm. I mean, so on, I think, the topic of how does this actually relate to teaching in your teaching experience, because in addition to researching and writing, you teach in your teaching experience. How have you used stories of individuals in your courses? So I find that individual stories help people understand larger social processes and it humanizes them. And so I, um, I had a, my first contact with Brazil was a Brazilian exile, um, a man named Marcos Ojuda, who came to the United States in 1971 after having been imprisoned and tortured for eight months and almost dying. And he, his mother lived in the United States, so he came here. And I met him in 1973, and we became friends. And his mother, many years later, wrote a story of his arrest and torture and published it in Portuguese. And I was committed to publishing that book in English changing it a little bit, adapting it, giving it an introduction. And I assign it to my students in class. It's the only testimony from Latin America or from Brazil on this topic. So it's the only thing we have in English. And I find that it it makes the story of the military regime, 21 years of authoritarian rule, it makes it real because it brings personal histories into account. How do people make decisions about how to deal with this? Do we ignore? Do we get on with life without trying to do anything about it? Or do we try to change a very oppressive situation. Um, it's an agonizing story because it's, it, it expresses the pain and suffering he goes through and that of his family who are trying to get him out of prison. Um, but I think this brings other countries and cultures alive to people. And that's one of the reasons why individual life stories enrich our understanding of the past. That's interesting. I mean, so at Choices, we're thinking about how we connect university scholarship to high school classrooms and the curriculum unit that we did on Brazil, uh, there's actually a film that was made by a Brown student called Oras, and it's the story of Marcos Arruda. Uh, and so it's a perfect example, it seems to me, of, of how scholarship becomes useful and useful to a larger number of people. And people can find that if they just go to our website, the full version of the film is there. And actually, there's a whole lesson and activity that explores Marcos's and his family's personal experiences. And I think what's beautiful about that also is that how this is something about personal lives and how they touch people that Marcos touched my life and changed my life and committed me to fight for human rights in Latin America. Uh, the woman who made that film took my seminar on the military dictatorship. She it was The classroom was filled. There were already full number of students. She begged to be in the classroom. And I she was so insistent that I let her in. Good decision. And it changed her life. <laughs> and so uh, one of the things that's most pleasing as a professor is that I can bring material to people that does change their lives and makes them rethink the world and their place in the world. So she be- decided to do a film on this. Another person in, in that seminar in another uh, iteration is decided to be a film documentarian and is doing a biography of another Brazilian. And that changed her life as well. Um, so it's a way that we as teachers, whether it's in high school or in college, can really transform people's lives. Many times we don't know it, 
And we get a letter 20 years later saying, you know, you don't know, Mr. or Mrs., how important you were for what you said to me in high school, but you kept me surviving through difficult moments, believing in myself, and now I've achieved X, Y, or Z because of you. And it's just one of the most wonderful things about being a teacher. So I just I think that's a great place to conclude uh, and just say thanks so much for uh, listening. Uh, we're the Choices Program. This is Jim Green. He's the director of the Brazil Initiative at Brown University. You can look at the, their website, uh, the, the Brazil Initiative, for all the events and activities. Also, stay tuned for the publication of Jim's book uh, coming out on, on Herbert Danielle as well. The Choices Program is based at Brown University's School of Professional Studies and the Watson Institute for International and Public Affairs. This has been Inside the Writer's Room. Thank you for listening.